Hi, this is Becca. And I'm Sherry. Welcome to the Truth to Freedom podcast, where we're going to cover the topic of parental rights, human rights, and religious freedom. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Truth to Freedom podcast. We are excited to present today part one of a presentation that Dr. Peter McCullough gave at an event in Independence, Kansas recently. This is only part one of a part two uh, series, so watch for part two in the next episode. But this presentation is really packed with information, so be sure to listen through it once or twice. If you would prefer to watch this presentation or download the slides that he refers to during his talk, I will include the link to where you can go and watch the video and download those slides. So be sure to look at the show notes if you would prefer that. But enjoy the audio today as we look at part one of Peter McCullough. I was going to introduce Dr. McCullough and read his long list, but this has literally been up the whole time. So I'm not going to do that because you've been able to read that. And so let's go ahead and give him a big round of applause as he comes up. There will be time for question and answers at the end, so go ahead and write your questions down. Just a reminder, no personal medical questions, correct? Try to keep it academic, and this water is for you, sir. Okay. Well, thanks so much for that introduction, and I can tell you, I've, I've never been um, come up on stage after someone's rifled missiles of uh, t-shirts out in the crowd, <laughs> but I was so impressed with... Um, uh, with Mr. Kobach's uh, presentation, and I can tell you I've, I've never heard someone in politics articulate the right scientific concepts and just absolutely nail it And every single one. It's so great to hear that. That was really fantastic. And, and, and I've had a chance to work with some uh, good ones, including ones in the former presidential administration and at the, uh, the federal level, both in the Senate, in the House, and then certainly at multiple, uh, multiple state senates. And that, that was actually the best presentation I've heard, both constitutionally uh, as well as integrating the science. So that was terrific. So as, um, as you can see by my introduction, I've been active in COVID-19. But I want to let you know I'm a mainstream doctor. I'm just a regular doctor. I went to Baylor University. Uh, as undergraduate, and then the University of Texas at Southwestern, uh, which is in the, at last I checked, about the top 25 medical schools in the United States. I finished top of my class, what's called Alpha Omega Alpha. I went on from there to the University of Washington in Seattle at the time, uh, and it still is today, the top place in the United States to train in medicine and surgery. It's just ahead of the Harvard programs. I interviewed there as well. Um, but after Seattle, I did service, which is very common back, you know, this is 30 or 40 years ago, I did service. I uh, did rural service in northern Michigan for three years. Many of my fellow residents went on to be CDC officers. Uh, and then after that period of time, I trained in the third year of that, I trained in public health at the University of Michigan, uh, one of the top schools of public health in the United States. I went on and trained in cardiology in southeast Michigan, which is now at the is called the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. And I had leadership positions in academic medicine in multiple institutions. Uh, one of the highest positions, I was the chief academic and scientific officer for the St. John Providence Health System, which is the largest uh, health ministry of Ascension Health. I, uh, for several years, probably my most enjoyable job I had was the chief of cardiology at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. And for the last 
approximately 10 years, I've been in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. That's where I started out. I returned there uh, to better take care of my family and my parents who are getting older. My, um, my son was able to go to Baylor undergraduate and then uh, on to medical school at the University of Texas at Houston. The reason why I'm telling you all that is that, um, you know, I know uh, uh, at least one person in this room who received a text and they said, are you asking that, that non-mainstream doctor into our town uh, to give a lecture on COVID-19? Well, I got to tell you, I'm about as mainstream and top shelf as you're going to get in medicine in the world right now. So for that doctor, for that doctor who sent that text, which, as you know, that text was meant to be demeaning. That text was meant to be debas debasing. That text meant to be insulting. I can tell you, I am supremely confident that of any individual who can stand here before you, I am going to give you the clear, in my view, the best I can do interpretation of the science. I'm the most published person in my field, in the world, in history, that deals with heart and kidney problems that existed before COVID-19 blew into town and really turned our lives upside down. I dropped everything in my career to focus on COVID-19 because I did not see things coming together quickly enough to save Americans. I worked very hard to put together the very first sets of treatment protocols to save Americans from being hospitalized or dying. I immediately was contacted by the White House and later on by the U.S. Senate and have been very involved with all the things that you see uh, behind you uh, in order to make things happen. I am, uh, uh, have no financial conflicts of interest. I am a volunteer on all the organizations that you see uh, behind me uh, in order to uh, give my best academic contributions to what's going on. And having said all that, um, uh, what I'm going to do in the next, I'm going to be a little bit more than an hour. I'm going to move uh, uh, quickly through this. I'm going to give the best interpretation of the science. And you can see um, what, how this is going to mesh with what Mr. Kobach mentioned. And um, let me see if I can. Uh, that was my fear. Get this going. OK, hang on one sec. No, no presentation is complete without some technical Thing. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and take the mic. I think I may just be just out of range. It would be better for me to be out of the slides anyway. Okay. So the first point I want to make is for new biologic products, we always demand safety. We, they have to be safe, right? I mean, uh, uh, many of you take medications. I take medications. They must be safe. The medications may not work perfectly, but they must be safe. We can't have things into our body that is going to potentially cause harm. So there are great efforts put forward to make sure drugs and products are safe for us. You know, there's safety inspections over this auditorium. This auditorium is, I think, nearly 100 years old. Is that right? I mean, it's a tremendous structure. And it's safe. I'm standing up here because there's been safety inspections. We must demand safety. We have um, an experience with mass vaccination programs that goes back a while. Uh, the most recent large-scale mass vaccination program was the swine flu pandemic, 1976. We had 220 million Americans in the United States. Uh, we attempted to try to vaccinate the whole country. But we stopped at 55 million or 25% of the population because there were 25 deaths. 
There were 550 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. That's a, a, a paralytic syndrome. And even though President Ford wanted to make this happen, this was going to be a signature of his presidency. In fact, with no internet, no VAR system, no Twitter. It was newspaper articles. And the newspaper articles, by the way, were, were disparate in their conclusions. Some of the newspaper articles said that, uh, in fact, it wasn't the vaccine causing the paralysis or the deaths. It didn't matter. People said, listen, we don't have any stomach for this. Shut it down. 25 deaths. It ultimately rose to, to uh, 53 deaths uh, afterwards. And the bottom line is the government said, we're sorry that this happened. And they provided compensation to the vaccine victims. So for new biologic products, and I'll follow this outline, make a points with respect to the bullets, we have standards. We have standards that must be kept uh, at all times. And I had published last year um, through a window I had to America on this uh, through The Hill, which is a Republican journal. And I can tell you politically, I'm kind of in the center, maybe even a little bit on the left. But I can tell you, I was asked uh, by through a series of intermediaries say, listen, Dr. McCullough, we need, we need some help here. Uh, we are not getting a good forecast on what's going on in the pandemic. So I published a series of these op-eds. For each one, I basically predicted the twists and turns of the pandemic, where we saw uh, commentators on CNN and USA Today and others actually miss major milestones. I was able to hit them. And uh, in fact, in this one, published in the summer, I said, this is a gamble. This vaccine seems like a gamble. There was already a hubris that we were going to be saved by a vaccine. I said, wait a minute. Uh, this looks dangerous. Uh, we don't have enough time for testing. We, um, you know, are, are, seems like we're actually not using any of our current resources to really focus on early treatments to prevent hospitalization and death. We're putting all of our eggs in one basket. That was the great concern I had. I said, wait a minute. Vaccines against respiratory illnesses don't work that well. They never do. They're never perfect. And in fact, this is a very contagious uh, respiratory disease, and um, it's a gamble. It just didn't feel good. As a doctor, I can tell you it didn't feel good. Well, what do we know? The virus is a ball. It's a coronavirus. These red uh, buds on the top, this is the spike protein. This is the spike protein. What you need to know is the ball, the nucleocapsid, is pretty innocuous. It's loaded with RNA inside. All the danger to COVID is in the spike protein. That's where all the danger is. That's also where all the manipulation was happening in the virology lab in Wuhan. And there's enough knowledge there to indicate that that red spike had been worked on for a long time, starting probably back to 2006. There's published papers about trying to, trying to get that spike protein just fine-tuned so the virus could jump from one species to another. They were working on this in the lab. The US was helping them through the National Institutes of Health. The University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, Ralph Barrick, um, our current head of the National Allergy and Immunology Branch, was helping them through uh, a whole variety. And it wasn't money. China's had plenty of money. I've been to China five times. Believe me, their labs are terrific. They don't need our money. They need our intellectual capabilities in order to do this type of research. But they were trying to make this virus more contagious and more lethal. It's just a fact. Uh, Rand Paul is on this. You see the interactions. Rand Paul knows. We all know there's enough there to suggest that this was being 
manipulated. The spike protein is the problem of the virus. It's not the ball. You have all had coronaviruses. They're pretty mild. They stay in the nose and the throat, and you get through them, and it doesn't invade your body, and it certainly doesn't destroy your lungs, and doesn't cause blood clotting. The spike protein causes that. What we know now is the, the our vaccines that we're using in the United States, on the left is Johnson & Johnson, on the right is Pfizer and Moderna, they use genetic mechanisms to, when they get injected into the body, they're on lipid nanoparticles, they distribute through the body, actually through all the vital organs in the body, and then a mosaic of cells is created in the body that take up the genetic material to various degrees, and then the body starts producing the spike protein. That's how the vaccines work. They trick our body into making the dangerous spike protein. And there are the red buds. You can see them there. They're inside the cell. They cause damage inside the cell. They're expressed on the cell surface. Immediately, the body recognizes this as foreign. The body attacks our cells. And then that star-shaped shell is an antigen-presenting cell that actually presents the spike protein to the body. And then antibodies are raised against the spike protein. That's how the vaccines work. So in theory, it would be wonderful if we just produced a little spike protein, let's say in a relatively non-critical part of our body, like our arm, and the vaccine stayed there, and we pro provided some immunity to it, and then we had antibodies against the spike protein. So we're actually trying to neutralize the most dangerous part of the, the uh, virus. So it makes sense to do that. One of the problems is that this is brand new genetic technology used for this application. These, about 24 of these genetic platforms um, uh, in development actually for decades, and they have largely been failed uh, forms of biotechnology. They're actually used not to produce an abnormal protein, but to produce a normal protein. And there is actually one we can use. It's called Petirisan. As a cardiologist, I can use it. It's a messenger RNA drug that we can give to try to um, cause an interfering messenger RNA to be produced to actually downregulate a gene in a condition called amyloidosis. That's the only messenger RNA product on the market. But I can tell you these messenger RNAs, and I've published on this as an author with uh, Dr. Karygopoulos out of Athens, Greece, the messenger RNAs probably last in the body for months. Four months, okay? Uh, the messenger RNA are particularly worrisome because of the blue caps on the end, the three prime and five prime caps, which are called nucleoside analog caps. They don't break down easily. And one of the concerns is the body cells are in a homeostatic environment. Your body cells are producing messenger RNA every minute. You're producing a single protein from the messenger RNA and then it's dissolved. It's a one-and-done phenomenon for messenger RNA. It's very unnatural to have messenger RNA in a cell and have it be used over and over and over and again. And that's what's happening with these messenger RNA products, at least for a month or so, at least. That's very unnatural for that to happen. In fact, it's probably thermodynamically unnatural to basically take over the body's cells to do that. And I can tell you what's really unnatural is to have lipid nanoparticles deliver that to the brain and have spike protein produced in the brain. Okay, that's very unnatural. It's very unnatural to have this delivered to the heart and have spike protein actually produced in the heart muscle. And it's now been shown that these are delivered to the human ovaries and have spike protein produced in the human ovaries. These are organs that should not have a foreign protein that's dangerous uh, to the human body have that foreign protein basically get an open shot at the organs to cause organ damage. 
So what we've learned about the spike protein is that the damage it causes in the respiratory illness is very similar to the damage we're seeing with the vaccines. Well, these came out in uh, December, December 10th or so, and about 70% of many internal medicine practices, cardiology practices like mine, took the vaccine. People in my family took the vaccine. People in America took the vaccine because they were told, listen, it's safe, go ahead and do it. And uh, in fact, people did it. But over a course of a few months, there was enough there, I think, in April, uh, certainly by April, at least 57 out there, 17 countries, uh, we published this paper saying, listen, we've got problems. We've got questions. We've got urgent questions about the vaccines. There's too much going on here that doesn't look good. Um, uh, in fact, we're not seeing any as safety assessments of the vaccines since they've been released, that if we can't get the safety committees together quickly, we should shut down the program. This paper basically said shut down the program because we, that's what we do. We shut down programs. You know, when drugs are released and people start dying after the drug is being hit, we don't keep, continue to give the drug. We actually pull the drug off the market. That happens all the time. The FDA have, has pulled off hundreds and hundreds of drugs off the market. So we said it. Our concerns were, listen, the, the messenger RNA and adenoviral DNA cause the production of the spike protein in the cells, tissues, and organs. We now know the spike protein is dangerous. We didn't fully understand that when this vaccines were being developed. The spike protein is in body fluids. It's in donated blood. There's been no studies to see if it changes the genome, if it causes birth defects or cancer. This concerning ovarian biodistribution study, Pfizer showed the Japanese in a study that the vaccines do go to the ovaries. This was very concerning. We've never had a vaccine that hyperconcentrates in the ovaries before, never. Concerning reduced uh, fertility study, uh, Moderna had to show that to the EMA. There's no safety committees involved. There's no restriction of the properly restricted groups. In the registrational trials, uh, uh, pregnant women, uh, women of childbearing potential, COVID recovered, suspected COVID recovered, they're all excluded from the trials. Human ethics committees and FDA agreed they shouldn't be in, in research because the vaccines either aren't going to work or they're going to cause harm in those groups. Of course we should not give it to them. There's been no risk stratification for hospitalization and death in the public program. Do you know we give the pneumococcal vaccine for seniors to protect them? We give the meningococcal vaccine to college kids to protect them. But with this vaccination program, there was no uh, restriction to the groups that really needed the vaccine. There was the idea, it was, listen, everybody take the vaccine without any restrictions. No data transparency. Very important, no data transparency. This is so bad that there's lawsuits. The FDA is being sued for transparency of the data. Pfizer's being sued to say, listen, show us what's in these vaccines, what's going on. Today, actually, a lawyer representing the FDA in federal court made the case that they should not re release, you can look this up on your phones while you're talking, that the FDA should not release the Pfizer data to the US public, uh, fully being transparent on the vaccines until 2076. <laughs> Go look it up, it just came on my feed. I'm telling you, I know that because I'm one of the experts that's been proposed to review the data in a public committee. This is astonishing what's going on. There's been no effort to mitigate risks for the public. Well, we started learning, look at this brief report. This started to come out, and this all came out since the vaccines have come out. We started to learn things that was relatively uh, sickening 
uh, regarding the vaccines. This paper from Harvard, Ogata, showed that, in fact, the spike protein is produced, and it's produced in large quantities, and, and we never thought this was going to happen before the vaccines came into uh, approval, that the circulating spike protein is measurable in blood day one, and it averages 15 days after the first injection of messenger RNA. The longest was in somebody 2019, 29 days. This is a dangerous protein. It damages blood vessels. It causes blood clots. It damages the brain. This is the spike protein that takes away the sense of smell in COVID-19. This is the spike protein that causes muscle loss. This is the spike protein that was genetically altered in the lab in Wuhan, China, through gain-of-function research to become specifically more dangerous to the human body. This is what every person who takes the vaccines is having to happen to their body. We never knew this was going to go on. We never knew. This is like a bad dream. This is like a bad science dream becoming real. Now we've learned in this paper from Bruce Patterson, uh, who trained at University of Michigan and Northwestern. He's at Stanford. I'm talking. He's a top-shelf person. I've had a chance to talk to him firsthand. What this paper is showing, as the title indicates, the spike protein persists in human cells and monocytes after the respiratory infection up to 15 months. And I, talk, I had a personal conversation with him on Bruce. It's going to come out on America Out Loud Talk Radio. The same thing is true after the vaccine. With each injection of the vaccine, it, with a great degree of confidence, I can tell you the spike proteins in the body for a long time, probably a year or more. With each injection, a run of the spike protein, distribution in tissues, and then a long time to clean it out of the body. I asked Dr. Patterson, I said, is there any other infection? Is there any other organism that stays in the body that long after an infection where your body's trying to clear it out? And he gave the example of Lyme disease. He said after Lyme disease, some people get a post-Lyme disease syndrome where your body's trying to clear out the remnants of the organism called Borrelia burgdorferi, which I thought was pretty interesting. I never thought about that. There's other viruses that do a permanent install in the body. I hope you know this, where, where the body actually installs itself into our DNA. So chickenpox is one. That does a permanent install, and it later can come out as shingles. We know that Epstein-Barr virus in mono, if that does a permanent install, and then it comes out later on. Those of you who have ever gotten herpes simplex, uh, cold sores, for instance, that does a permanent install, and it comes back out. This is not a permanent install. This is a spray of spike protein in the body, and then it's a long-term clean-out to get it out of the body through monocytes and macrophages. So many are saying, now that we know that this is actually spike protein deposition that's causing the problem with the vaccines, we have, you know, we, we have to stop now before it's too late. So people have asked me, Dr. McCullough, this sounds terrible. I took the vaccines out of being patriotic. Um, what should I do? I said, listen, if you've had shot one and shot two and you had it, you know, nine months ago, your body's probably clearing it out. You're probably fine. There's been no harm. The vast majority of people who took the vaccines, it's roughly 200 million people who took the vaccines, are fine. They took the vaccines, nothing happened, they're fine. And chances are, no further shots, they're going to be fine. But you can imagine, now that we know that the spike protein is dangerous and it lasts in the body for a very long time, if we took shot one, shot two, and then six months later another shot, and six months later another shot, I can tell you the stuff is going to accumulate in the human body. You're not going to be able to get it out of your body. People are not. And it's almost certainly going to cause disease. 
You can't deposit a foreign protein in the brain and the heart and the other vital organs and not end up with a problem. It's going to happen. 100% chance it's going to happen. So there is an opportunity. I think the big opportunity is just to basically not take these boosters. Listen, 60, 70% of Americans took the vaccine, 80% of seniors. It's over with. There's not that many people who didn't take the vaccine anymore. It's really about the boosters. Do you know for immunocompromised right now, the current schedule is shot one, shot two, a third shot a month later, and then a booster at six months. I have a patient who's had a liver transplant. That's what he's doing. He's been told to do that by the transplant program. I'm concerned about spike protein accumulation. I think there's so, so much that's unknown about it. I think we could uh, be in trouble. And I think a lot of the safety problems that we're seeing is this initial surge of spike protein generation. And we have not seen a report card from the CDC and FDA regarding safety. They have stonewalled us on safety. This is very concerning. You know, it just no one actually knows the playbook on how to run a mass vaccination program. But the Center for Disease Control, the CDC and FDA, they work for us, not, not vice versa. We, you know, I can tell you as a doctor, I've been very vocal about this. Where's the safety report? Where's the safety report? For a clinical trial, we get a safety report, you know, at a trial, a study this big, it would be once a month. All the vaccines are researched. When you sign the consent, they're under research. There needs to be a safety oversight committee, a day safety monitor board, to oversee the research. It's not in place right now. The CDC has not given any transparency on safety. What's the safest vaccine? What's the least safe vaccine? What's the vaccine that works the best? What's the least effective vaccine? Americans haven't been told anything. They've been told just to take a vaccine. You know, that in alone it by itself should be worrisome. And you know, the same thing is occurring around the world. The rest of the world is doing the same thing. Just take a vaccine. There's a vaccine available in some parts of the world. It's called the Coronavac vaccine. It's by a company called Sinovac. It's a killed virus vaccine. It barely works at all. We're talking, you know, less than 30% protection. But they're told, listen, take any vaccine. So it's so it's so irrational to say, listen, take any vaccine. I might as well say, listen, take any diabetes pill. I don't care. It's like, wait a minute, all the pills are different. Shouldn't there be one that's best for you? So the idea, the idea that our FDA and CDC, who are running the vaccine program, have not given Americans any guidance on which vaccine to choose, and we're a year into it, and we're overloaded with vaccine supplies, that in alone and by itself is worrisome. I'll go farther than that. I'd say it's irresponsible of our agencies not to give us a safety report. It should have been once a month. If we would have had safety reports, going back now, we learned on January 22nd we were in trouble. We already had 182 deaths after the vaccine. The total number of deaths that occur with all the vaccines combined, 278 million shots a year, is about 150 or so, not temporally related to the vaccine. Other events were already happening. We only had 27 million people vaccinated, and we were already over the line. If we had a proper data safety monitoring board in place, the vaccine program would have been shut down in February, and the storyline would have been, it just didn't work out. The vaccines weren't safe. I know this because I chair data safety monitoring boards for some very high-stake trials for the NIH and for Big Pharma. I've made the decision with a committee to shut down a multi, multi-million dollar, hundreds of millions of dollars program on a pharma promising drug. I've done it. It's agonizing to shut down a program. It would have been agonizing to shut down the vaccine program, but I'm here to tell you as a doctor, the vaccine program should have been shut down at about 182 deaths. It would have been 200 Americans would have lost their lives with the vaccine, and we would have done a deep dive to figure out what went wrong. 
Why were people dying after the vaccine? It shouldn't happen. You know, vaccines may not work well enough, but people shouldn't die after vaccines. It should not happen. The vaccine, event, vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS, is an early warning system. Jessica Rose, who's probably the best viral epidemiologist in the world, showed us, according to reports per year and deaths per year, it's clear that the COVID-19 vaccines were giving us an early warning. There's warning. It's like, Houston, we've got a problem. It's not working out. The vaccines, look in 2021, this is undeniable we have a problem with safety with this vaccine. It's undeniable. Any expert would look at this and say, wait a minute, this is out of control. You can see now where the, where the problem has gone. We've run up on October 29th, we have 18,078 deaths. We've run up from 182 to over 18,000 deaths. Now it turns out in the VAERS report, this is the red box report, these are the permanently permanent ones with permanent VAERS numbers. The CDC has told Americans that this has occurred. Half of these are domestic and half of these are ex-US that get reported through US reporting systems. The numbers are astronomical, over 250,000 ER visits, hospitalizations, uh, and office visits, 11,449 cases of myocarditis or pericarditis, 32,851 severe allergic reactions. How can we predict each one of these severe allergic reactions? You know, we have to fill out these uh, mandate forms, and people say, well, you know, have you had an allergic reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine? The answer is, I don't know. I haven't had it yet. But by golly, 32,000 people are having severe reactions. You can see the big spike has happened in 2021, and all the action occurs on days one, two, and three. Almost everything bad that's going to happen with a vaccine happens within a few days of getting the shots. The organ injury syndromes are shown on the right, the brain, the heart, the immune system, the human system, it's where the spike protein deposits in the body is where the body is particularly injured. And people can say, well, how come one person has a brain injury and the next person has a heart injury? It probably actually has a lot due to luck on where the vaccine distributes in each individual person. We know the deaths occur very quickly. They occur within a day or so of the shot. Two separate analyses, one by Rose, one by McLaughlin, show 50% of the deaths occur within 48 hours. So when it happens, it happens fast. 80% occur within a week. It's very tightly related to the administration of a vaccine. This is very different than the flu or meningococcal vaccine where the deaths get reported in a much more stochastic manner. This is temporally related. This analysis by Scott McLaughlin at Queen's in London with the US VAERS data showed that 86% of the deaths have no other explanation. People went into a vaccine center thinking they're doing the right thing and they actually die within a few days. It's happened too much. That's the reason why there's so much tension. Most people have decided, listen, I'm not taking this stuff. I'm not taking this stuff. And then they're told, listen, you're going to lose your job. And they say, listen, I'm still not taking it because of this. We can't predict who's going to die and who's not going to die with the vaccine. And the numbers are astronomical. Now, who's dying after the vaccine? Sadly, it's our seniors. It's the same people we meant to protect with the vaccines, in fact, are dying with the vaccines, probably for vulnerable seniors. The spike protein production in some is too great, it's too overwhelming, and we know the spike protein is lethal. Now, Ron Costas, in this analysis, has shown whether it's the respiratory infection or the vaccine, the age distribution on deaths is the same, the y-axis is different, but Kostoff has basically asked the question, what's better? Is it better to, to take the vaccine 
Or is it better to take your chances with COVID? And what he showed is that when you evaluate the risks and benefits, given the high rates of death with the vaccine, it's better for someone who's age 65 to actually take your chances with COVID. That's astronomical. The whole reason why we're giving the vaccine is try to stop these COVID deaths, but in fact, it's making it worse. I was on um, an interview with Chris Saucedo in the national news, and there was a report out of Taiwan where there was more people dying of the COVID vaccine than dying of COVID. And I said, yeah, Chris, that's the way it works out. When, when there's less COVID in the community, because the vaccines are continuing to roll, more people will die of the vaccines. The same thing is true in Australia. Anywhere where there's lesser amounts of COVID, the vaccine is doing more damage than the respiratory illness. We should never be giving ourselves death by injection. That's just so uh, completely unacceptable in a free human society. The obituaries, as you can imagine, with these deaths are piling up. This is from uh, Michael uh, Granada, and he's someone who took a vaccine. He started to have one of these horrific side effects. He didn't die right away. He was hospitalized, but he knew the vaccine and the spike protein were ravaging his body in his syndrome called multi-system inflammatory illness. And what he wrote, he actually wrote his own obituary. He said right here, if you want to know more, please ask my wife. I wish I never would have gotten vaccinated. If you are not vaccinated, don't do it unless you're ready to suffer and die. That is chilling for someone to write that in their own obituary. That is absolutely, it's just almost, uh, uh, it's just a horror to read this. Jessica Rose went on to show that the non-fatal organ injury syndromes tend to occur in younger people, but again, they're explosive after the first shot or second shot. There are now new diseases in medicine. This is from Annals of Hepatology. Those of you in healthcare recognize, I'm giving you like a medical grand rounds. I'm not, this, none of this is, um, uh, is uh, in any way my opinion. This is a medical grand rounds. This is called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea. This is where there's bleeding from the gums and nose. There's blood clotting and bleeding internally, and it's a complete disaster. Patients need to be hospitalized. We have to give transfusions. Uh, we have to give uh, steroids and other drugs and plasma exchange and try to get patients better. Here's another obituary. This gal died in uh, Washington State. And look at, she died of, at age 37, vaccine-induced thrombocytic period, VITT. She died of the illness I just showed you in the medical literature. Now, here's a 37-year-old woman who has no business taking the vaccine. Right? I mean, COVID-19 is a breeze at age 37. We've had, you know, we've had 100 million or more people her age get the respiratory illness. This, is not, this isn't somebody who should take a flu shot. This isn't somebody who should take a pneumococcal vaccine. This is just a person who should be a mother taking care of her children, but instead she's taking the vaccine and she's no longer here for her kids. This is an unbelievable, this is an unbelievable tragedy. She left two daughters behind, completely needless. COVID-19 would have been a breeze for her. Who knows, she maybe already had COVID-19. Maybe she was forced to take the vaccine for her job. Now, now she's no longer there for her kids. 
There are other syndromes. There is a syndrome of, of with those with high blood pressure, some of you have this, of a huge blood pressure spike causing a disaster, a stroke, a aortic dissection. You know, it's probably, a lot of you know, I'm on uh, Fox News a lot. I'm a frequent contributor for Laura Ingram. Uh, Laura Ingram, a, a woman was uh, brought on who had this happen. She bled into her brain with a huge surge in blood pressure. She's ruined. She's paralyzed on the left side. I've talked to her and her daughter. It's real. Now talk about regretting the vaccine. She was enjoying retirement. She was enjoying her grandkids. Now she's devastated. There's not a single one of these people who said, yeah, taking the vaccine's a good thing. She absolutely regrets it. Her goal is to try to warn others so others are not damaged. Now we're down to, to heart inflammation or myocarditis in the kids. Talk about people who really don't need the vaccine. How about this little kid now who's got chest pain and the parents are trying to figure out should they take him to the hospital after getting a COVID-19 vaccine. We now know from this paper from Evolio and colleagues that the spike protein directly damages pericytes or support cells in the heart, and that's the mechanism by which the heart is damaged. It's damaged by the spike protein, just as I said from the beginning, but now it's supported in the peer-reviewed uh, literature. And this analysis by Tracy Hogue from University of California at Davis, and I'm showing you the, the title pages of these papers so you can see these are the data. These are the data our CDC officers and our directors of the NIH should be showing Americans. This is the type of scientific uh, review that we should be getting on TV from our scientific correspondents. Okay? This is really important. This is what you're not seeing. But what did Tracy Hogue show? And we're talking about this. These are very solid people. What they showed is that of those myocarditis cases now, 86% of these kids are hospitalized. 86%. So it's serious. I told you there's 11,000 cases. This is common. This is common. This is not something that we can write off as being mild or being uh, rare. And then very importantly, she showed, just like Ron Kostoff, for, and this is much more in boys than girls, that if a young person, a young person who takes the vaccine is more likely to be hospitalized with the myocarditis, which is serious, as opposed to being hospitalized with COVID-19, because kids get very mild COVID-19. Again, a bad trade-off. The FDA has warnings against myocarditis. The FDA basically is telling their parents, don't give your kids the vaccine because of myocarditis. Tracy Hoke showed that the myocarditis is explosive. It presents with chest pain, dramatic EKG changes, markedly elevated cardiac troponins, abnormal echocardiograms, and some boys much more than girls. You can see the age distribution there. And then finally on the right, she estimated that it's far more common than the CDC told America back in June when the cases were emerging and the FDA warnings were being put out there. So myocarditis, a very serious concern. The FDA agrees for Pfizer Moderna in young people. To make matters worse now, the deaths are coming in. This uh, a case of fatal myocarditis, 22-year-old man, another person who doesn't need the COVID-19, he had chest pain for five days after the first dose of Pfizer, and he admitted to hospital. He died seven hours later, and the myocarditis is in very, very critical areas of the heart, including the conduction system and the atria. If we vaccinate the kids, and if the schools mandate vaccination for the kids, and the colleges, in fact, mandate vaccination for the kids, we will see children lost. It's, it's a certainty. It's just a matter of how many. And you can imagine the agony that parents are going to have as these cases come in. So without protection from the pharmaceutical laws, 
the vaccines will do more harm. There's laws that say, listen, there has to be truth in advertising. There has to be fair balance. We just can't say take a vaccine, take any vaccine without any attention or concern to safety. I've never seen our NIH or CDC directors on TV express any concern over safety. I've never seen any of the medical correspondents outside of a few of us who are frequent contributors on Fox and a few other stations express any concerns. Most doctors come on and say, listen, the problem is people just need to take the vaccine. In fact, uh, the CNN, CNN commentators uh, uh, say, you should take the vaccine to win back your freedoms. I've heard her say that, the, the girl from Emory. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Uh, but this is really at the point where I think historians are going to write about this. This is Sanjay Gupta. That's one of the CNN correspondents. And you know what they're doing on Sesame Street? They're trying to seduce the children into taking the vaccine. They're not warning the children about myocarditis or the signs and symptoms. They're not warning the parents. I think historians will go back and they'll look at things like this and say this was immoral. It was unethical to do this. And from a civil legal perspective, you know, this was illegal. This was illegal to do this. You can't go on TV and promote a biopharmaceutical without giving fair balance. There must be, you know, any other product that's advertised on TV, it says, well, it treats rheumatoid arthritis or treats uh, psoriasis, but warning could cause this. It was no warnings. He didn't give any warnings at all. He's just simply saying, listen, take the vaccine and without any attention or concern to safety. That's what we call willful misconduct or being willfully blind. That is, he's being willfully blind and being unconcerned with children being damaged. Even if it's one child that's damaged with the vaccine, it's one child too many because the kids don't need the vaccine. The vaccines are neither met clinically indicated or medically necessary in children. Now, roughly 600 children per year out of the tens of millions of children we have in the United States actually die of influenza. It's sad, but they can die of influenza. We don't give the kids uh, flu shots, but it can happen. There are children who have cystic fibrosis, who have other congenital pulmonary conditions or other uh, special needs children, uh, people like this, Cartagenaire syndrome. There's a bunch of syndromes where they're at risk. It turns out with COVID-19, there were about 600 of these kids, just like flu. There was almost no flu last year, but there were 600 kids with COVID who did pass away. Sadly, the, the, the cases that I'm aware of, none of them received any early treatment. And just with some early treatment, some of those kids could be saved, but they had underlying conditions. Marty Macri at Johns Hopkins has estimated, and Scott Jensen in Minnesota, another doctor, confirmed it, that only one child in the United States truly died of COVID without having had any medical problems, and sadly, that child wasn't given any treatment. So all we had to do was just treat the problem, and we could have managed the children would be off the table. And many European countries agree taking children off the table for COVID-19 vaccines. But it's now acknowledged. I told you in May we were concerned internationally. It's now acknowledged by many across the world the vaccines are not sufficiently safe. I give credit to a French laboratory very early on in March. They made the call, listen, pull them off the market. They're not safe. I was part of that author group with the uh, Bruno paper, which is from South America, North America, and Europe, where we said they're not safe. We didn't say pull them off the market, but said, listen, do a safety review. If you can't get it right, get them off the market. But the evidence-based consulting group in the UK 
led by Dr. Tess Lowry. This is the lead consulting firm to the World Health Organization. They are top shelf. They analyze the yellow card system, which is just like the U.S. VAERS system, but it's UK. And you can see her conclusion, an immediate halt to the vaccine program has to happen so they can figure out what's going wrong with these vaccines. They're not safe for human use. This was in June. So it's not like we didn't say anything. I'm telling you, the world knew that we knew as experts the vaccines were not working out as being safe. None of them were. Look at the World Health Organization. This just came out November 12th. This is called the, um, the uh, Vigi Access, another data system. These are total adverse drug reports, total adverse drug reports. And you can see this is from 2015. This is all the mumps, all the rubella, all the measles, you can see all the vaccines. And then you see COVID-19 at the bottom. It's not even close. It's not even close. The COVID-19 vaccine, which was given to far fewer people in the world than the flu shot or the pneumococcal vaccine or the, or the uh, tetanus shot, it is not even close. The COVID-19 vaccines will go down as the most unsafe vaccines in human history by a mile. And I'm just showing you data from multiple sources to make that case. There have been citizen petitions against the vaccines to, to urge the FDA, stop this. Stop the approval process of it. There's been doctors' uh, petitions, nurses' petitions. People know that the vaccine should not go forward and to be fully approved. But what no one expected is that vaccines may not be as good as they look like when they come out of clinical trials. When the vaccines come out of clinical trials, they look like they were 90% effective. We heard about this. This was terrific. And I, I testified in the US Senate. I was asked a question in November on this. And they said, do you have any, any problems with the vaccines? I just didn't, I, I was silent. Because you know, coming out of clinical studies, it was, they were short term, but they looked pretty good against the wild type, the alpha and the beta variant. 90% efficacy, two months of follow-up. Uh, there were no major systemic safety problems. We know now in the uh, briefing booklets that were shown in September and October that looking at all the data with Pfizer, there's slightly more people who died with the Pfizer vaccine compared to placebo. Um, uh, and there was no reduction in hospitalization and death in the registrational trials. But still, the vaccines look like they look good coming out of clinical trials, and I didn't have a bad word to say about the vaccines. I didn't. And uh, I didn't encourage the vaccines, and I didn't discourage the vaccines. No good doctor, by the way, can encourage a vaccine. I hope you know this. The vaccines are research. The vaccine, no, at any time, even a good vaccine, we couldn't encourage it, because these vaccines are research. And there are codes of conduct in bioethics. When it's research, we can neither encourage or discourage. We have to be neutral. It's very important. There's a, there's a code of conduct called the Nuremberg Code, which says, we can't, see, I'm a researcher. I'm a medical doctor. I'm in clinical practice, but I do research. And so if I had a diabetes study and I told somebody, listen, you have to be in my diabetes study. You better, you better, you better get in it. You have, in order to be in my practice, you have to take the diabetes research. I would be called in front of the ethics board and the FDA. I'd be probably banned from doing research. That's unethical for any doctor to basically push or promote any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for someone to participate in research. That's very important. If you felt any pressure from your employer, from your doctor, from your family members, they are violating a code of ethics. As Mr. Kobach said, the vaccines are all research. 
When you, sign, when you take a vaccine, you're signing up for research. The CDC is saying, listen, do your own fact-checking here on the safety. The consent form says the reactions can be as, much as, a, as little as a sore arm or as much as you die. It says right in the consent form, death is on the consent form. They're telling you this wide open. On the consent form, it either says investigational research in every state in the United States. This is very important. There, they are, there's nothing being hidden from you on this. But the, and, and I don't think anybody had a problem with the vaccines back in January, February, March, because it was elective. The only reason why you're in the auditorium now is because it seems like it's not elective anymore and we're being forced into this. That's the real problem. What no one thought, though, is the vaccines may not work well enough. Well, we had data. Now, this was recently published, but we started to have data come in that looked like the vaccines did do something. The vaccines were not a complete bust when it comes to protection of COVID-19. Here's protection against hospitalization. Now, it's not randomized data. And those who take the vaccine, by the way, are people more interested in protecting themselves against COVID, so they're going to take more precautions. But the, 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 the vaccine efficacy for Moderna, and by the way, remember I said that they haven't told us who's the winner and the loser? Moderna's a winner. Moderna has 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. Pfizer's 30 micrograms of messenger RNA. It makes sense. Moderna's three times as strong. It's going to provide better protection. And then the loser is uh, Johnson & Johnson. But they had Moderna at 92%. Pfizer at 77% and Janssen at 68% protection against hospitalization. That's pretty good data. Now, it's about 5,000 patients, but this was the first thing that came in supportive. The caveat is they didn't have any data on Delta. The virus mutated over time, and so, yes, it, with the older variants of the virus, the vaccine did provide some protection. Now, this paper came in uh, in the last few weeks from Cohen and colleagues from the VA. Several important findings. When we look at time from vaccination by calendar date, all the vaccines look like they ran out of gas when we got into September. You can see that Johnson & Johnson was only down to 10% protection. You can see that um, uh, uh, Pfizer was at about 44% uh, protection by September. And you can see that Moderna was at about 58% protection. Why? Because by September, we had Delta, and the vaccines were running out of gas. They all ran out of gas in September. Now, uh, what's shown on the right-hand panels is less than 65, over 65, and protection against uh, mortality. And you can see here, compared to those unvaccinated at the lower line, all the vaccines provided some protection against mortality. I just spoke at a conference in Columbus, um, Ohio, and one of the speakers was Scott Atlas, who was in the White House with uh, Trump. And we had known each other in other circles because I had testified uh, for the Senate. And Scott and I agreed that, in fact, there was some protection, and probably still is some protection against mortality. So for those of you who took the vaccine, people in my family took the vaccine, they got through it without any safety problems, I still think there's some benefit. It's not compelling, but they do have some protection against mortality. They do have some protection against hospitalization. It is true that someone who's unvaccinated is more likely to be hospitalized than someone who's vaccinated. But having said that, the vaccines are running out of protection. Uh, this uh, big study, 1.6 million people from uh, Sweden, Nordstrom et al., has Pfizer and Moderna now, after six months, Pfizer's down to 23% protection, and Moderna's down to 69% protection. In general, if a vaccine can't last a year and can't give 50% protection against the illness, it's not considered a viable product. 
So at this point in time, it looks like maybe Moderna could be considered viable as a product in the future, but Pfizer is not, and uh, Johnson & Johnson is not from other data. So um, the vaccines don't work. They're certainly not 90% protective. They start out at 90%, they all do, but the point is they run out quickly. We know that for each month, the antibody levels drop by 40% per month. They're out of gas after six months. Now, the vaccines are providing antibodies only against the spike protein. With the natural infection, there's 27 proteins. You get antibodies against 27 different proteins. We heard a good uh, point about checking the immunity on testing. With the natural infection, we get full T cell immunity. We get none of that with the vaccines. We get only protection against the spike protein, and it runs out pretty quickly. There are now 22 studies showing that the vaccines all wane in efficacy over three to six months. The FDA, no matter what the original votes were, is going to tell everybody to take a booster because it's clear the only reason why they're telling people to take boosters is because the vaccines don't work long enough. Now, I was on Australian TV uh, in the last week or so, and I received word that I think is credible that the Australian government has purchased 14 doses per person. That means one shot every six months for seven years. They have no plans for this to be over quickly. And I can tell you, at one shot every six months for seven years, that spike protein accumulating in the human body, it's going to be impossible for that not to cause damage to the human body. You cannot load ourselves with a foreign protein that's not supposed to be there over and over and over again. It damages too many organs. It's going to cause problems. The failure of the vaccines has been revealed, and it's just it's clear that the vaccines do not provide any protection in the workplace. This is a military workplace. It's a military cruise boat where the young, fully vaccinated crew got COVID, and they passed it to one another. This is an outbreak. The CDC has told us this in July. This is an outbreak. The light blue are fully vaccinated. The dark blue are unvaccinated. Who's getting more COVID? The vaccinated. If you have a vaccinated workplace, who's going to get COVID? The vaccinated. The vaccines don't stop transmission of COVID-19. This idea that an employer is going to force a vaccine on the workplace, for what reason? It doesn't make the workplace more safe. There is just an overwhelming amount of data. With the Delta variant, Mayo Clinic study has Moderna down to 76% and Pfizer down to 42%. So it's not just the duration of time. The vaccines all run out of gas after six months, but the Delta variant now drops the efficacy. It's all Delta now in Israel. 86% of people who've got COVID in Israel are fully vaccinated. Those in the hospital are fully vaccinated. If you vaccinate the whole population, and it doesn't work against COVID, of course, all the COVID cases are going to be vaccinated. I think everybody should understand that. So the last bastion of claim that I've heard from community leaders is that, oh, well, people in the hospital are unvaccinated. I say, well, listen, we just take a look at Israel. If we keep pushing our vaccination rates up, we'll just be like Israel. Israel's post-vaccination curve is way higher than the pre-vaccination curve. But, you know, the data are available. They're on the CDC website. This is October 18th. The CDC doesn't have all the cases, but they have sporadic cases that come in through the Departments of Community Health. But the CDC is telling America the vaccines are failing in large numbers. 41,127 Americans are fully vaccinated 
and have either died or been hospitalized. Sadly, 85% of the hospitalizations, 66%, uh, 85% of the deaths, 66% of the hospitalizations are in seniors. The vaccines are failing in seniors, the very people we're trying to protect. Remember, COVID-19 is all about old people. It's not a young person's problem. COVID-19 is a problem of seniors. These two papers, one by Havers from the CDC, COVID Net Network, and the other one by Fillmore from the VA, show through June, 23% of Americans hospitalized with COVID-19 have been vaccinated. Now, in June, there was a issued talking point that went out, and all the governors and everybody parroted it, that it was 99% unvaccinated. That was untrue, and it was sad. Even, even Ron DeSantis said that. It's wrong. It's wrong. Our officials should never repeat a false talking point. False information put out to people by government leaders is called propaganda. DeSantis participated in it. Our presidents have participated in it. Tons of public health officials. It is not correct. This is the published information, published by the CDC and VA, and they both agree. In June, it was 23% of Americans in the hospitals were vaccinated. Not, not, not 1%, it was 23%. You can see how information was manipulated. Why did they say it was a crisis of the unvaccinated? To try to scare people into taking the vaccine. It's wrong. That's propaganda, false information put forward by those in position of authority. Now we have CMS data, Medicare and Medicaid recipients through the first week in August, it's clear as Delta shades into 99%. We've got a ton of breakthrough infections in the vaccinated, 161,000, and 60% of Americans over 65 have been hospitalized with COVID-19 are vaccinated. So I was in Bartlesville. We met with doctors, and the only thing the doctors could say at the meeting was that all the patients in the hospital in Bartlesville were unvaccinated. That was their main talking point. And I can tell you, I looked them in the eye, I didn't challenge them, but I know the data. I know what they're telling us is not right. Okay, I think when people walk into the hospital, they're assumed to be unvaccinated unless somebody goes to some effort to prove they've taken the vaccine. And the vast majority in the hospital who've taken the vaccine, get hospitalized with COVID, they're not too proud about taking the vaccine. So I don't think the patients volunteer it, and I don't think anybody asks. I think it's an assumption that they're unvaccinated. Matter of fact, I know it's an assumption because no one is looking at the data. This is obvious. This is federal data. It's obvious. Here's our U.S. vaccination curve. We're at, you know, we're approaching 70% vaccinated. You can see these are the cases of COVID. The vaccine programs made no impact on crushing the curve of COVID. We knew it wasn't the case. The vaccines don't work well enough and don't last long enough to save us from COVID-19. It should be abundantly obvious to everybody looking at this graph. We can get up to 100% vaccinated in the United States. It's not gonna influence COVID-19 because the vaccines don't work well enough against COVID-19. This analysis by Subramanian worldwide shows no relationship to the uh, uh, intensity of vaccination and COVID-19, none. In fact, the most heavily vaccinated countries have the worst problem with COVID, United States included, and Israel. 
The va- countries that vaccinate the most have the worst problem with COVID. Why? Because the virus has learned to exist in the vaccinated very well. Supermania, and this was published in Nature, a very good journal in August, has a very charitable conclusion that the sole reliance on vaccination as a primary strategy has to be rethought. What did I publish uh, a year ago in The Hill? I said, listen, I'm worried. This is a gamble. We're relying too much on the vaccine to save Americans and not relying on anything else to help us get out of the pandemic. By pushing mass vaccination, our governments have created evolutionary pressures on the virus. You know, we kind of fooled with Mother Nature here, and this paper by Nissen from Mayo Clinic shows we get to 25% vaccinated in the population, the virus starts to actually change in terms of the frequency of dominant mutant strains. We always used to have half a dozen dozen different strains. We had Delta for a long time, but it was minor. Delta moved forward to become a dominant variant because we fooled with Mother Nature. We can't take, you know, we have, let's say, 200 million Americans who took the vaccine. They now have the same limited immune profile. They are immunologic clones of one another. That is so biologically wrong. You know, human biologic systems live on diversity. Diversity actually makes us stronger, not having a lack of diversity. Vaccination causes a lack in diversity. What's happened? This is the spike protein here. This is the small gray structure. The green part is where the antibodies stick. The the black part is a large antibody. It's got a small target to hit. What happened with Delta, and this is a paper by Venkata Krishnan from Mayo Clinic, showed that the spike protein mutated with Delta to take away the the landing zone. So now many of the antibodies can't hit Delta. No wonder Delta can can basically exist in the nose of those who've been vaccinated. The antibodies can't hit it. And so the Delta variant is what's become super dominant in the United States. All the other variants are gone now. All the variants that we relied on in the clinical trials are gone they're actually extinct. The wild type, uh, alpha, beta, gamma in the United States, they're basically gone. Look at this. We have 99% delta through the end of August. There's no more alpha. There's no beta. There's no wild type. The vaccines were all coded against the Wuhan wild type virus. The vaccines basically are absolute lead because delta now is the dominant variant. People said, doctor, do I need to take a booster? I said the booster doesn't cover the current problem anymore. The virus has basically changed. Look at these data. This is from a cherry at all, UC Davis, showing among all cases, fully vaccinated, not vaccinated, whether they have symptoms or pre-symptomatic, there's no difference in the viral load in the nose of people. It should be obvious that these look the same. The vaccinated are no better, they're not cleaner, they're not better sterilized at anything compared to the unvaccinated. Why would an unvaccinated have to be tested at work and the vaccinated not be tested? They have equal amounts of virus in the nose. These are basically samples taken out of the nose of those who presented for testing. Look at this paper from the Wisconsin Department of Public Health, vaccinated, unvaccinated. There's no difference. Low cycle thresholds, that means very high viral loads with Delta now, vaccinated, unvaccinated. They even took samples out of the vaccinated, unvaccinated, showed on the right panel, and they're equally as infectious in basically cell cultures. So a vaccinated person who begins to get symptoms is just as much as a public health threat as an unvaccinated. So to have any differential approach on testing or any differential uh, approach on on, uh, employment is counterfactual 
uh, to the science that I'm presenting tonight. These are published papers. If any of you are in leadership roles, you're talking to people in your companies, tell them to review the information. My slides are freely available. We'll, we'll, we'll distribute it to all of them. It's clear the vaccine doesn't make any impact at all on virus in the nose. So we must pivot to early treatment. We hope you've enjoyed part one of this presentation by Dr. Peter McCullough. Just a reminder, check the show notes if you would like to download the slides or to watch the video of this presentation. Be sure to tune in next episode to listen to part two of this presentation by Dr. Peter McCullough. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be used as medical advice, but rather a launching point of information to help you be informed and make informed decisions. Every person is different and has unique needs and should consult with their healthcare provider for medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of Kansans for Health Freedom.